0: The Lord is good and faithful. He's proved that through Jesus. Uh, we learn about that through um, the entire Bible, but in particular, even in the, the prophets, the book of Joel. Hey, would somebody mind opening those back doors for us? We'll keep those open during um, this time. That'd be awesome. So what Joel is teaching us is how to relate to God in the midst of the brokenness we see around us and the brokenness that we see within us. Um, we're learning about the language of lamenting. We're learning how uh, better to repent. I think we, we're more familiar with repenting than lamenting, but we're two sides of the same coin as we've been discovering. And we're at this point in, uh, in Joel where if you've been with us uh, for the past you know, month or so, uh, you know, you've been with us through locust plagues and craziness and things like that. Joel now takes this beautiful turn and we get a picture of what's to come. We get a picture of restoration. We get a picture of what's on the other side of our lamenting. What's on the other side of our shame? What's, what, what's there for us in Jesus? Um, so if you've got your, your Bibles up in Joel chapter two, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm gonna read verses 18 through 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He is Pour down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. We pray for us. Lord, thank you that these words are true, that they point us to Jesus, who takes away our shame, who restores to us what we are lacking, who satisfies us with good things. Indeed, who saves us and brings us into relationship with you. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> um You know, we're talking about how Joel is teaching us to lament, and there's actually been a lot of lamentation. Going on uh, here in our church family, our church community lately. And, and if you've been kind of following some of the prayer chain stuff uh, here recently, uh, and you know from David Sawyer's prayer that uh, Kara Mongold and Amy Herman uh, both lost their, their sisters and their, their mom passed away Friday night. So please do remember them and their families in your prayers. Uh, in addition to the Mongolds and Hermans, you know. Uh, David was praying for Wendy Newdorf. Her dad's had two emergency brain surgeries. Abe's dad is also in the hospital and doesn't look great for for either one of their their dads. Um, You've been following, of course, uh, the prayer chain about Mark Allen's dad, uh, about Megan Hale's dad. They both lost their dads. I lost my dad. We're having the memorial service for my dad this Saturday. and even for those of you who, who are pet owners, you know the lament that comes from losing a pet. We lost our dog, Charlie, this past Wednesday. So there's a longing uh, in our hearts for death to be no more, uh, for disease to be no more, for, for disaster to be no more, for God to, to make his will on earth done as it is in heaven. And, and that's really the heart of lament. And that's the heart that's answered um, through, for us in the gospel. We can call upon God as our father. We can know him as our redeemer and our restorer. And Joel gives us a beautiful picture of that, of what it looks like to seek satisfaction in him, and then ultimately to be on the other side of lamenting and shame. As we jump in on, in verse 18, we see that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, you'll be satisfied and I'll no more make you reproach among the nations. Um, It's the Lord's jealousy that sort of prompts him. It's the catalyst for his action. And, And I don't know about you, but that can be kind of a strange thing to read. We don't typically associate God's jealousy is something that, that maybe is a positive trait. Like we just look at all kinds of jealousy in general and think that's bad, that's negative, you shouldn't be jealous, right? But no, not, not for God. God's jealousy is, is unique and, and, it's, and it's a good thing actually. It's what prompts his restoration of his people. Uh, you can't get around his jealousy. Uh, he puts it front and center right in the middle of the 10 commandments. Um, in the third commandment, he says, "You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Right. And um, and then you know that refrain of his jealousy of how he, you know, will hold accountable those who commit sin, and he will bless uh, to thousands of generations those who love him and keep his commandments. Well. You know, we, we read about how God revealed himself to Moses in that way, repeated that same refrain, followed it up with, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness. Joel repeats that phrase earlier in chapter two, verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. But we thought, We thought jealousy was a negative thing, right? Um, Because human jealousy typically is. It's it's bitter, it's narrow, it's selfish. Like it pretends to care about the other, the the love that you've lost, but it generally is just about how it reflects badly on you, about what you're not getting anymore from that person. And so it's self-interested. But God's jealousy is not like that. In fact, Paul um, makes it something that we aspire to. He tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, that, that he wants, that he feels a divine jealousy for them. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. What's the divine jealousy about? Like Paul's saying that he, he feels God's jealousy for the Corinthian people to make sure that they are faithful spiritually to their heavenly groom Jesus. And that the reason why that's a good thing is because when God is our husband, He wants what is best for us relationally. Divine jealousy or God's jealousy seeks the good of the spouse. It's not selfish, it genuinely is other oriented because. God knows that no other relationship is going to satisfy as much as his love for us will. You see why divine jealousy is a positive thing? We've, we've, in our sin, have made it something selfish, but at its source, it's beautiful and it's good, and it's actually what's responsible for his pursuit of us. He wants what is best for us relationally, and that's, that's to be in covenant faithfulness with him. And that's what leads him, you know, all the bad things that have happened to God's people in Joel are really what he is doing to woo them back to himself. They've put their trust, you know, in a whole host of things. Joel isn't specific, but we know that our hearts are inclined to run after a whole lot of things to get our comfort, to get our, our, our satisfaction, our salvation. And we can put our trust in this, that, or the other, or even just trusting in ourselves. And God's saying, no, that's not what's going to bless you. You need to be in a relationship with me. And that's what's going to satisfy you. Um, That's what, you know, God says, I'm going to send you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Um, The lamentation that has characterized Joel so far is based on dissatisfaction. Lament springs from what's wrong, right? Not what's good. So when we're satisfied, we're not lamenting. We don't have any reason to. And ever since Eden, we have been dissatisfied. Therefore, ever since Eden, we've been lamenting. Our sin nature makes us look to created things rather than our creator for that satisfaction. And that leads to all kinds of problems, right? Sin's sin's essence is not moral, it's relational. I mean, this is why the Pharisees who were really very moral, you know, law-abiding people were far from God because they were still relationally very distant from Him. They were sinning because their affections, their heart's desire was not focused on God, it was focused on their reputation, or it was focused on their image, it was focused on their record, those kinds of things. Which is why we say that sin's essence is relational. It's not necessarily moral, it's not necessarily you know, something ethical, it's, it has to do with where is our heart in relation to God? Certainly there are plenty of things that people look for for satisfaction that are wrong, that are ethically bad. And, you know, people can take advantage of others and they can abuse people, they can steal, they can bully, and they do all those things to find satisfaction in negative places. But how many of us look for satisfaction soul satisfaction in good things. in things like grades or doing well at work or, you know, marriage or your kids or recreation. I mean, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but if they become ultimate things, they become idols. They become a replacement in our heart for our relationship with God. And that's what makes him jealous. Because he knows that only in relationship with him are we truly going to be satisfied. Isaiah uh, is, is, Joel's not alone. The rest of the prophets say the same thing. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, that your soul may be satisfied, that you may be uh, released from lament because you have your needs met in in God. Um, Jeremiah, you know, to, to round it off with another prophet, Jeremiah 31, I will satisfy the weary soul. Every languishing soul I will replenish. So if you feel that, longing, that languishing, um, God is inviting us to find our rest and satisfaction ultimately in a relationship with him. Um, When we talk about lamenting, we, we look at that in the broad sense, it's what's broken and what we're longing for God to fix. In a more specific sense, we lament what's broken around us and we ask God to fix that. And we also repent when we see what's broken within us. And we ask God to fix that. That's what the gospel does for us. That's why repentance is what happens when we become dissatisfied with what we see in our soul. When we recognize, yeah, I've been been chasing after stuff, maybe good stuff, and I've let it become ultimate stuff. Instead of looking first and foremost to to God to satisfy me. Um, So that's the blessing of lamenting, that's how it, orients us to God so that we look to him, the jealous God who has a divine jealousy for our hearts, to know him and to be ravished by him, to be loved by him, to really overflow uh, because of him. And and when we rest in that, when when we do lock onto that, we get to see what's on the other side of our lamenting. And that's the satisfaction that comes in relationship, you know, with God. Um, there's this long list of verses here starting in verse 20 where Joel starts to say, this is what it looks like on the other side of lamenting. You know, that uh, I'm gonna take the enemy away. uh, I'm gonna drive him off the northerner into a parched and desolate land. And we're gonna get rid of the enemy who's done great things, great, terrible things. You know, Uh, Commentators, I should say, I should tell you like the scholars and the people who who have studied and uh, know historically some of the setting They're not really sure, are are we talking about the locusts again, or is this some kind of Assyrian army or Babylonian army, you know, who knows, depending on when you date the prophet Joel. At the end of the day, all we know is that whatever is being removed was making life miserable. And God's promising that I'm gonna do something about the harm you're experiencing, the devastation that you're going through. And he says in verse 21, fear not, O land. Uh, He says in verse 22, fear not you beasts of the field. Uh, And I think that's kind of interesting because often we're used to hearing um, the angels come and tell the shepherds, you know, fear not, or, you know, Gabriel coming to Joseph and saying, fear not, or, you know, all the other places in the Bible where, you know, the angels talks to the the apostle John, Revelation, do not be afraid. and, And we hear people being told in, throughout Scripture, don't be afraid, fear not. But here it's the land and the animals. And you get that beautiful couplet of how you're not to fear, O land. Don't be afraid, O beast of the field. Instead, be glad and rejoice in verse 21. And then you see it again in verse 23. Be glad and rejoice, you... Uh, children of Zion. So whether it's the creation or the people, God is going to do this all-encompassing work of restoration and redemption that's gonna blow people away. And therefore they don't need to fear and they, they should instead you know replace the fear uh, with gladness. I, I love how much attention Joel is paying not just to the human condition, but to creation as a whole. Like, how often do we sing, you know, as, as we did this morning, uh, that everything should, should praise the Lord. Everything that has breath should, should praise the Lord, right? How often do we hear about in scripture, the trees and the stars and the flowers and the, and the rocks crying out uh, in praise to God. Jesus saying, look, if I tell these kids to be quiet, then the rocks are gonna start shouting. And I don't think you want that, you know, so we're gonna leave the kids alone. I mean, just again and again and again, all throughout scripture, there's such a bigger picture going on of what God's doing than just, you know, what is happening in our lives. It's, it's wonderful that he pays attention to us. We should be paying attention to what's going on all around us. The, the future that is coming, where, where even the creation, which groans for its redemption, is going to be satisfied. You're going to hear the cows in the fields going, Ah, oh, this is good, you know. You're going to hear the trees clapping their hands. I, all right, so maybe uh, what, as C.S. Lewis said, what may not be accurate as poetry might have some surprises in store for us as prophecy. We'll see. Uh, something to think about. But I love that it's all-encompassing. And then you get to how, uh, with all these things, that, that the great things that God is doing, Ultimately, Joel, as all the prophets do, as all Scripture does, is pointing us to Jesus, the one who truly does the great things. So um, Jesus shows up, you know, who knows how many hundreds of years after Joel, but nonetheless, Joel is a very familiar book of the Bible to the first century community that Jesus was walking around in. Uh, for, for many of us, Joel may not be that familiar to you, uh, especially if you don't have a, a background in the Bible or in church. You didn't even know there was such a book as Joel before we kind of opened this one up. Um, and, it, and for those of you who've been around for a while, I'm going to guess it, maybe it has been some time since you've read the, the Minor Prophets or the Prophets in general. But that wasn't the case in the first century. People understood Joel. They were familiar with Joel. He's quoted all over in the New Testament. Peter quotes Joel, John quotes Joel, Paul quotes Joel, Jesus quotes Joel. Why? Because he is commonplace. He is known. Um, These brief chapters were familiar to their audience. Well, so therefore, if you look at verses 24 and 25, where it says that the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore or or repay to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Um, when, When we read those words, I want you to imagine the first century hearer being very familiar with those words. So familiar, in fact, that you might wonder for those who were in the village of Cana in Galilee, when that wedding took place that we read about in John chapter two, and as the, you know, the whole village comes together and all the extended family and they're having this days long party because really weddings are the only celebrations, the only you know, entertainment that small villages 2,000 years ago would experience. They're having this party, they're having this wedding and there's feasting and there's wine and, and, it's, and it's wonderful until they run out of wine. And this is an incredibly shameful experience for the host, for the family who's throwing this party. Because the party's going to grind to a halt and therefore they're going to be disgraced. They're going to be known for the rest of their lives in their small village as the ones who couldn't get their act together. They didn't know how to throw a party. They didn't do it right. They're going to have that stigma hanging over them the whole time. But they remember Joel. They remember that there's this promise that the the vats shall overflow with wine. And along comes Jesus, and there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, to overflowing. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, the master said to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now, right? John tells us that this was the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. If you're just reading that, parable, or that, that, that uh, miracle account and you're going, his disciples believed in him because he made a bunch of wine? What's, what's going on with that? Well, his disciples believed in him and he manifested his glory because they're remembering Joel chapter two. Wait, the vat shall overflow with wine. Look at the cover of your bullets. This is a uh, um, fresco by Giotto, it's enormous. Uh, this is just a detail from it, but, but that gives you a picture of the size of the, of the jars. It gives you a picture of the master of the feast who looks like maybe, maybe he's been to a few feasts in his life. I don't know. He's, had, he's enjoyed some wine before. Uh, Nancy Miller who works at Barron Ridge uh, Vineyards uh, was telling me after the first service that she just did the math on the six stone water jars each holding them between 20 and 30 gallons. This was uh, like 30 cases of wine each case holding a dozen bottles of wine. I mean, it's just more wine than anybody would would ever even want to drink. And here's Jesus making this uh, incredible statement about what he has come to do. To restore all things. To bring us to the other side of lamenting. To make there to to satisfy our souls, to to bring a day when we're not gonna be any more lack, where we're all not gonna, you know, Pray these prayers of of longing and and, uh, lamenting anymore. I want you to just imagine the shame that that young couple was spared from. That Jesus comes not only just to manifest his glory, but out of mercy and compassion to restore, to repair, to to end the shame that this uh, family would have experienced. Look again at some of the rest of what the promises are in Joel chapter 2. He says, I'm going to restore. Or repay to you the years that the locust has eaten. And look at all of the life and the ministry of Jesus as he's restoring people, as he's removing their lament, as, as he's removing their shame. Remember, remember the woman who had 20 years of menstruation? She could not stop her bleeding. She went to doctor after doctor after doctor and impoverished herself, and she got worse. And she heard Jesus was in town and she thought, this is my last chance. And she sneaks up behind him, touches the hem of his garment and like lightning, she felt his healing power in her body. And he turns and says, who touched me? I felt healing go out of me. I felt restoration flow from me. And he restored to her what the locusts had eaten for 20 long, anguishing years. And again and again, Jesus would come to those who had, you know, leprosy. The skin disease that was eating, you know, reality away from people for years and years. The locusts were just eating their flesh away in that sense. And they'd come to Jesus and say, if you're willing, you can restore me. You can make me clean. And Jesus would say, I am willing. Be clean. And they're restored. Um, the, you know, people are being restored from disease. They were being restored from demons. They were being restored from death. And they're seeing this picture of what Joel was promising would happen when God would remove lamenting, when he would remove shame, when he would restore all things. Uh, restore also means repay. You get Zacchaeus saying, "Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna re, uh, pay back everything that I, that I stole or extorted from people. And you get this principle you know, of, of people making reparation. Uh, this promise that's coming true. Uh, there's even this kind of weird mention in verse 22 that the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine. And you kind of wonder, right? Like there's that puzzling place where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry and he sees the fig tree and he's hungry and he wants some figs and there's no figs on the tree. And he curses the tree. We all wonder, what, do you, what, what did that little tree do to Jesus? Like, why did he curse the tree? Could it be that Jesus is telling a parable through that tree? That's, this tree isn't, isn't telling the story of the end of lamenting. It's not consistent with what Joel promised, what would happen when I return, when I came to bring my kingdom in all its fullness. Jesus said, look, everybody, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me will be satisfied. And he put that on display every day of his earthly life. Everywhere he went, people were seeing Joel Joel's prophecy coming true. Jesus provides all these things of a picture when we will lament no longer. That day's coming. It's coming. It's, uh, I think, easy for us to just associate lamenting with complaining. And it's not wrong to say there's an aspect of complaining to God, you know, that, that is incorporated into lament. But we've all been told all our lives, hey, you know, you shouldn't complain. Don't Stop complaining, stop complaining, stop complaining. Be grateful, be thankful, whatever. Well, there's a, it's not entirely always the best advice. Sometimes it's incredibly good counsel to complain when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And to take that complaint to God because embedded in lament is complaint, right? Like praise is this part of lament that looks to God as the one who can do something about what we're complaining about. We're, we're trusting him. Does it not praise the one who has the power to fix the problem? Doesn't, doesn't lament, trust Him to be good even when our our circumstances aren't. And so praise gets baked into that lament, that holy complaint in such a way that it's good. It's a good thing to lament. It's a good thing to have this time to tell God what's wrong so that we can trust Him to fix it. It brings us to this fullness of praise. That's why we sing, come ye who long pain and sorrow bear, praise God, on Him cast your care. It's this Invitation to come to the one who's promising that lament will be no longer. Trust him. Jesus takes us to the other side of lamenting and he takes us to the other side of shame. Verse 26 we're told that you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You will know that I am in the midst of Israel that I am the Lord your God, there is none else. And there's that couplet again, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Shame. Shame's a, a social phenomenon. Shame is what happens when we feel inferior in the eyes of others. Shame's what happens when you feel like you've failed somebody. When, when you didn't finish what you set out to accomplish that, that others are depending on. Uh, shame's what happens when you get caught by somebody. Shame's what happens when you feel unwanted or ignored. Shame's what happens, you know, when they're picking teams and nobody calls you until the end. Shame is what happens when you are excluded, when you're rejected, when somebody hurts you, when somebody harms you. Shame is what happens when you feel inferior in the eyes of others, worthless, disposable. Shame's really uh, kind of this thing where we don't worry about our, uh, how we look when we're alone. That's why to pardon the crassness of the example, but you, know, you don't worry when your zipper's down inside the bathroom. It's when you're outside the bathroom because that's when people see. Now the worst kind of shame though is when you, when, when you feel ashamed when you're still in the bathroom and you're looking in the mirror and you don't like what you see. When you feel shame, ashamed in your own eyes, that's when it's drilling down in a really soul-crushing way. And the worst kind of shame of all not just shame in other people's eyes or in the mirror, but when you feel God's eyes as ashamed of you. That's the worst. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't just come to bring an end to our lamenting. He came to bring an end to our shame, to bring us on the other side of shame. Jesus came to bless us, not to shame us. In fact, the Hebrews tells us that we're to, to look to him, the author, and the perfecter of our faith because he endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That when Jesus came, he didn't come just to to bless a lot of people and end their lament and we go, oh, Jesus is so good and kind and that's great. I look forward to that day. He came to deal personally with our shame. To take away that that soul crushing, uh, that soul uh, destroying, Shame that comes through us lamenting what's inside of us. That we know that we are broken. So Jesus didn't just come to be an example of what happens when lament is gone. He came to endure our shame himself. When he hung on a cross, he was dying as a substitute sin bearer. He hung naked. He was mocked and jeered. He was put to shame to take our place. So that you and I and all who trust in him who look to him as the one who absorbs our sin sucks it into his body and out of ours and then who rose again from the dead to to demonstrate and to declare finally and fully it is finished. It is done. It is accomplished that we trust in him and we are not ashamed in God's eyes anymore. We're beautiful. We're pure. We're bright. We're clean. We're his bride. And he loves. And then that Identity begins to soak into and affect the ways that we look at ourselves and the way that we, you know, carry on in front of others. Whether they like us or not, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not going to fundamentally harm us. What is wonderful in verse 26 is that God says that he has dealt wondrously with you. Nobody saw the cross coming. Nobody can imagine a God who would subject Himself to the world's shame and mockery in order to deliver us from our own shame. And that's wondrous. That's something that's almost unbelievable. It's incredulous. And, and certainly the, the disciples didn't understand it initially and they needed supernatural revelation to put the pieces together, just like God's giving to us now. Has He put those pieces together for you, do you know what Jesus has done to take your shame away, to deliver you from your guilt, from your brokenness? Not just out here, but in here. We have to put our faith in Christ to have that deliverance. How, to know that the promise that all the prophets are speaking to, listen to you know, Zephaniah, says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. This is God's promise to us through Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Heather Davis Nelson wrote a book called Unashamed, and she explains how the gospel works like this. She said, through our union with Christ, you are clothed with honor rather than shame. Shame will linger for as long as we await the life to come, like we still feel its effects, but its voice will become quieter and its claims less insistent as we remember the reality that its hold on us is limited and fleeting. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we're united to him and trust in him and love him and receive his love, the less we have to lament. The more we experience his restoration, his fullness, his satisfaction. And to the degree that we are being filled and that we are being satisfied, guess what? we then can move into others' lives and give them less to lament. God's promised us a world where uh, lamentation will be like Elizabethan English. Nobody's gonna talk that way anymore. Nobody's gonna lament anymore. Nobody's gonna complain to God anymore because he's gonna bring all of his fullness to bear. In the meantime, he says, bring it to me, bring it on. And God's plan is for the church to be the kind of community that makes his kingdom visible more and more clear to other people's eyes now as, as, as much as is possible. Our job is basically twofold. It's to weep with those who weep and to try to give them less to weep about, to lament with those who lament and give them less to lament about, right? And we do that two ways, two ways. Quick points of application. When somebody's lamenting, just listen. Just listen. Step into their mud puddle and just be there. Have the courage to move into people's places of pain. You're bringing Jesus with you. You have his strength. You have his power. You can do it. So just listen, and once you have listened, after you have learned to lament with them, then ask, what can I do to help? You don't try to fix it at first, just lament with them. And then once you've lamented, try to lessen their lamentation. What can I do to help? I wanna just end with words from Isaiah. Again, another another one of the prophets, because this is all over the Old Testament. God's promise to lessen our lamentation, to bring us on the other side of shame and to make us a community that does the same for our community and our neighbors and the nations so that they see his kingdom. Listen to these words from Isaiah as we close. Is not this the fast or the lamentation that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks that you've come to lessen our our lament, uh, to ultimately bring us on the other side of lamentation. To remove our shame and to to clothe us in your honor and your dignity and your glory. To give us the righteousness of Christ who endured our shame for us. Or would you help us to cling to Jesus, to be satisfied in him, to turn from the things that compete uh, for our affections that ultimately belong to, to you. Lord, maybe they're bad things, maybe they're even good things, but we want to turn from all of them to look to you as the ultimate source of our salvation and our satisfaction. And Lord, for any here this morning, today, who are just connecting the dots about what you have come to do, Lord, bring about faith and new birth in them, help them to learn that you love them, that you poured yourself out for them, that you experienced uh, lamentation so that we would be delivered from it.